following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. I don't know if you boys and girls know what a caricature is. It's kind of a big word. But a caricature is when someone uh, will paint a picture of a person and will exaggerate uh, certain physical characteristics about that person. Sometimes it's done uh, in love. Uh, for a birthday a few years ago, I wish I could find it, but a good friend, Lou Vega, uh, drew a little caricature of me. Uh, and it's funny, but I know he did it out of, out of love. Sometimes you'll see not as much as you used to when we had newspapers, but political cartoonists, and they would always depict the one about whom they wrote. So when the, when the journalists learned that President Obama was kind of embarrassed about his big ears, he should have kept that a secret because that's what they went after then in their caricatures. And sometimes they're done out of malice, not even out of love or political purposes, but just out of just trying to hurt somebody. Um, But we also caricature things by our words. And you can can twist something that someone says. You can can put into a context where you put emphasis or accentuate a part of it that makes the rest seem foolish. And so you've caricatured or made a straw man about what a person uh, says. Oh, we, we do that as, as Christians at times. Back in the late 60s, um, Campus Crusade, I think they're called Crew now, had an evangelistic track, and it, it's called the Four Laws. And the first law was that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, there's truth in that statement, but it's a caricature of the gospel. So then there was a response uh, by others And uh, they took this out of the Psalms, and God hates you and has a terrible plan for your life. Now, that element of truth there as well. But see, both of these things were caricatures. You lost the balance of the gospel. People do that. Oftentimes when young people, particularly young men, uh, begin to get exposed to the doctrines of grace, and they overemphasize the five points uh, uh, in such a way that they've a name's been coined for them, and that's uh, uh, Cage Stage Calvinist. And that's just all they're about, and they're in the face of people with uh, those five things. Well, that's really what Bildad is doing here in chapter 25. Uh, he is setting before us a caricature of God. Now, when we read these words... You're saying, well, what in the world? I mean, he doesn't say a thing here about God that's wrong. But you have to remember context, right? Just as in real estate, neighborhood's always the big thing. In reading the Bible, context is always the big thing. This is not a simple statement about God. This is an ongoing debate. This is Job's friends trying to prove him wrong. In the first place, prove him to be a terrible sinner because only a terrible sinner could suffer the way Job is suffering. And basically, they can't answer him any longer. 
That's part of what's pitiful about this 25th chapter is that, I mean, Bildad's speechless. Their main accusation has been, as I pointed out last week, has been that uh, Job must be a terrible sinner. They eventually invent sins that he did because only a terrible sinner who did those kind of things could be judged of God. Well, he has shown through a series of arguments of, of God's ways with the wicked and the righteous, even uh, that God bears long with the wicked and, and does not oftentimes even punish them in this life, although they will live under his curse. Bildad has no response, and we see this is the end of the back-and-forth speeches. The men have no response. So Bildad changes the focus. Well, we can't get Job on that, but we'll get him for self-righteousness. Now, they're, they're at fault here. They pushed Job into the corner of self-vindication. Because here's a man with a pure conscience who is being railed upon as a corrupt and terrible sinner. And so he's been forced uh, in, in this context to defend his character. In fact, he's been forced to appeal to God to defend his character and to vindicate him. And he has pled that he might even come to the presence of God for vindication. Now, what Bildad does here, and we see from the end of the speeches in chapter 31 that the friends did as well, is they could not answer Job because he was righteous in his own sight. But see... He wasn't righteous in his own sight with respect to his acceptance with God. But God is the one who said that Job was blameless, upright, a God-fearer who was turned away from evil. Job knew that. So Job is appealing to God for vindication. So what Bildad says here is true. It's not what he says. It's how he says it. And for what purpose. That's why I call it a caricature. You know, you and I can do the same thing. We can say the right thing in the wrong moment. I'm sure most of us, not most, all of us who are married have done that, both uh, men and women. The right thing was said, but it was not the right time to say it. Well, that's just tip of the iceberg with what Bill Dad is doing. So uh, in these six verses, we see that an unbalanced presentation or portraiture of God's attributes leads to an ugly caricature of God and hopelessness for man. That an unbalanced portraiture or presentation of God's attributes leads to a caricature of God and hopelessness for us as people. So we're going to look at two things. Verses 1 through 4, the caricature of God's uh, sovereign dominion. And verses 5 and 6, the caricature of God's transcendence. We begin then with these first four verses. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered that simply the way that uh, the Holy Spirit shows us that this dialogue is continuing. And his answer is in verses 3 to 4, Dominion and awe belong to him who establishes peace in his heights. Is there any number to his troops? And upon whom does his light not rise? How then can a man be just with God? Or how can he be clean who is born of a woman? Now, Bildad says here four glorious things about God. And and we who have been saved by God's grace relish, rejoice in these four great truths that assert God's sovereignty. 
And, and the first truth is that God has a righteous reign over all people who are to fear him. And so the first line of verse 2, dominion and awe. Uh, word awe is word fear. Dominion and awe belong to him or with him. He asserts here God's sovereign rule over all things. It's a glorious truth, a truth that's not greatly appreciated, even in the age in which we live, and needs to be uh, asserted. Um, But he is lifting up God now as the one who does whatever he pleases. Think later of how Nebuchadnezzar will confess this in Daniel chapter 4. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? A glorious confession of God's sovereign rule over all things, uh, inanimate and animate, all people, all kingdoms, every inch of the entire created universe is under God's sovereign rule. And thus that is to incite uh, fear, a reverent response. Uh, In those who are not born again, it should cause a great dread to fall upon them or you, if you're in that state this morning, that this sovereign God will deal with you as he pleases. You have no right standing before him. You have no right in his court. And he will say to you, depart from me, I never knew you, and cast you into hell. But if you've been born again, then this truth fills you with a biblical fear, a reverence that is coupled with love and faith, that this is my God. I hope you can say that this morning. He's my God who rules over all things. Thus, there's not a thing that happens in my life apart from him. We know that Israel has that great missile shield, and almost no missiles get through, but sometimes a missile gets through. No, God's missile shield is perfect. Nothing comes through into our lives except that which he has foreordained. Thus, we respond with fear and reverence and faith. This is the first great truth about God that Bildad asserts. The second is, because of this rule of God, then he says that he establishes peace in his heights. Now, the word peace means wholeness and harmony. Uh, This could refer to uh, God's control of the heavenly spheres, uh, that everything works with perfect clockwork. Everything is always ordered, doing exactly that in a harmonious fashion. Um, But I prefer to think that he's talking here about heaven itself. And that God has uh, established and maintains peace and harmony in heaven. Perhaps an allusion to the rebellion led by Lucifer uh, when there was a disruption in heaven. But immediately God established peace and harmony. I think it anticipates what we just prayed in the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In God's sovereign rule, he rules with perfect harmony and joy in heaven. For all the angels who are ready at his bidding to do whatever it is that he has for them to do, and who are constant praise and adoration of him. So this sovereign God who rules over all things rules with peace. And if he rules with peace in heaven, of course, then he's establishing 
as the angel announced at the birth of Christ, peace on earth and goodwill to men, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the church, then, of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is reigning with peace. That's why there is to be peace in the midst of the people of God. And when discord is sown, we know that that is not of, of God, that's of Satan. And we must be careful that we're not agents of discord when God would reign in our midst with peace. Now, closely connected to the second, God's peaceful, harmonious ruling of heaven, is the fact that there he has a great army. So now, there's a rhetorical question. Is there any number to his troops? Now, that question is a simple way of saying there is no number to his troops. You can no more count the angels in heaven, the great army of God, than you can the stars. And so David confesses with respect to uh, the angels that the chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. This great standing army, this angelic host that we're told in the Psalms moves like the speed of light at the command of God. He doesn't need them, but he uses them. Just He doesn't need us to share the gospel, but he uses us. He uses angels and armies and singular angels to rout enemies, to protect his people, to proclaim his name, and all these various ways. This particular passage refers to the ascension of Christ. You know, when Roman generals would go back to Rome with their victory, when Titus came back from destroying Jerusalem, he had a train behind him of spoil and slaves and his army. In fact, the spoil of the destruction of Jerusalem is how the great um, amphitheater was built there in, in Rome. And that's the, that's the image here, that in his ascension, when our Lord ascended into heaven, he did so with a multitude of this great army and taking captivity captive, taking us in this train of victory as he mounts up to be seated. And this is uh, the beauty of our God who has this standing army of a multitude of heavenly hosts. This leads then to the fourth thing that Bildad asserts, again put in the form of a question, upon whom does his light not rise? Light here, I think, refers to the bounty and glory of God's governing of the world. That there's no place where the sun shines that the reign of God is not evident. And this reigning by light, the benevolence of God and his goodness and bounty that's, that's manifested or for the manifestation of his sovereignty. Now, these are four great truths that Bildad says about God. And he draws a proper inference then from these truths in verse 4 with, again, two questions. How then can a man be just with God, or how can he be clean who is born of a woman? Let's take the second question first, because it lays the foundation really for uh, the first question. And the second question merely asserts what the Bible teaches from beginning to end, and that is the, uh, the natural depravity of all those born in a normal way as David will say in his confession of sin, in sin, my mother conceived me. What he's saying there is, is that he was born with a sinful nature. As Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 2, 
Every one of us born in a normal way, accepting only the Lord Jesus Christ with a supernatural conception, is born dead in sins and trespasses. That is our nature by birth. That is who we are because of our relationship to Adam. It's well summarized in the Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, 18. The sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want, that means lack, of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. This is the state of every one of you, of these precious babies, Amelia Rose and uh, Oliver Fergus, uh, of all your little children. You've come into the world not as innocent, but as corrupt sinners. This is what lies behind the destruction of infants at times under the commandment of God. Uh, and this is who we all are by nature. And now because of that, we are vile and despicable in the sight of God. We are wicked and guilty, condemned sinners. And so we go to the first question, how then can a man be just with God? It's interesting, he uses two words here. The word man means the frail man. And the son of man refers to... Uh, um, well, he doesn't use the son of man here. He just uses the word man here to refer to the frailty of man. So because of our guilt, none, he says, can be just. And that means to be in God's court and declared not guilty. That's what this word means. To be in God's court and to be declared not guilty. He says not one of us, because of our sin, that could ever stand before God and claim any righteousness, any works on our part to make us acceptable. Because we are dead, we are under God's wrath and condemnation. And this is a very important truth as well, repeated many times in the book of Job, repeated throughout Scripture, that there are none righteous in the sight of God. No one can justify himself in the sight of God. And it's a very important truth. It's a truth that every one of you here this morning needs to understand well. Coupled with who you are by birth, who you are then before God. And if God were to ask you that question, why should I allow you into my heaven, what would your answer be? Well, I, I try to do good, and I, I'm, I'm a good citizen, and I don't cheat on my wife, I pay my taxes, or, or whatever. Uh, none of that works. It'd be like somebody just condemned for murder, and he pleads with the judge, but I've never had a speeding ticket. Uh, that's what your works are like in comparison to the condemnation of God. And if this morning you're not born again, if you've not repented and, and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are guilty in this court. And you have nothing, as we say, nothing in your hands to bring to this holy God. So that's a very important truth to understand. And I would press it on your consciences this morning as we sit here. But this is not what Job's about, you see. Job the person. Why, Job himself confesses this truth, for example, in, in chapter 9, verse 2. And, and throughout his speeches, he owns the fact that he is a sinner. He knows he's saved by grace, but he also knows he's been pardoned of his sin, and he's not deliberately practicing sin. 
And here's the, the struggle of his conscience. You see, Job is not claiming the justification of his person. He's claiming the justification of his life. He wants to be vindicated. And this is what the friends do not understand. And this is why this is a character. Because at the end of the day, when Bildad finishes this first part, well, there's no hope for a redeemed sinner to come boldly in the presence of God, is there? That's one of the things that we're going to see in this book of Job, that what he asks for, he gets. And he's not destroyed. He's silenced, but he's restored. But you and I, because of the completed work of Christ, have free and bold access into the very throne room of God as you pray, as you call out to God. Look at the example of the Psalms. Again and again, the psalmist is asking for God's vindication. You have a right to do that. Asking for God's help, asking for God's sustenance, asking for, for all that you need from God. We come boldly, we come because we're in Christ unashamedly. Even we come to confess our sins, we come boldly because we're in Christ and we know that our sins will be forgiven. You see, Bildad cuts off all hope for the justified sinner to come to the presence of God. But you remember in the Psalm of Ascent, 130, verse 4, we introduced those Psalms last week, but there the pilgrims would sing, there's forgiveness with God that he may be feared. And that's not the whole back in horror and dread. No, there's forgiveness with God that we may come to him with reverence and, and awe and love and faith. And that's what these four descriptions about God should do for you today. Not hold you back. As remarkable as it is, this God throws his arms wide open in the Lord Jesus Christ and says, as Christ says, come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Come boldly to him, because he is sovereign. Because he does rule with peace in heaven. Because he does have this host. Because he causes his light. Not just the general light of governance, but the light, the special light of his favor to shine upon you. Well, that deals with the first caricature, the caricature of God's sovereignty. Second caricature, in one sense, could be worse. It's the caricature of God's transcendence. And it's simply stated in verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, Bildad says, If even the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his light. And then a statement, How much less man, that maggot, and the son of man, that worm. Now, again, what Bildad says in verse 5 is a beautiful insight. He takes that part of creation that is the most uh, glorious and shining and bright, the moon and, and the stars, and, of course, the sun is in that as well. And he says that in comparison to the transcendent beauty and glory of God, they are so, boys and girls, when you're outside in the daytime, are any stars in the sky? Or do they go away? No, they're all there, aren't they? And why can't you see them? Because the sunlight is so bright. And what Bildad is saying is that the light of God's character and being is so glorious that it puts out all other lights. 
He's absolutely transcendent in all splendor and majesty. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In fact, he says that the stars are not pure in his sight. And um, here's probably a reference to what uh, Zophar said earlier, that even the angels are not pure in the sight of God. There's a, there's a relative holiness that, yes, they're sinless. But in comparison to the, the bright, glorious holiness of God, it's as if they themselves are impure. And surely the stars themselves are impure. And God wants you to have this high estimation of him. That when you look at the sun during the day, and you recognize that there's billions of stars up there, and you just can't see them because of the sun, take it another step. And let the sun, the moon, the stars remind you of the one who made them and is then more splendid and glorious than they are. So, Bildad's conclusion. A comparison. If the stars and the moon are nothing in him, how much less man and the son of man. So here's the word man that he's used earlier. Uh, Son of man, speaking of mankind. And he calls us maggots, fly eggs, and worms. A few things more despicable and uh, nothing weaker in all of God's creation than maggots and worms. So this is worm theology, you see. And Bildad's conclusion about man, the image bearer of God, is that he is simply no better because of the transcendence of God than a worm or a fly egg. Now, God himself will call his people worm. He does so, for example, in Isaiah chapter 41. Do not fear, you worm Israel, or Jacob, you men of Israel. But why? You have to keep reading. God addresses them as worms to signify their great weakness, that they can't help themselves. So he says, therefore, he will deliver them. So he says, do not fear, you worm of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. So it's good for us to be mindful of that great distance between God and us. And that in one respect... It is the distance of of God and a worm or a maggot. But he wants us to realize that only that we might cry out in dependence upon him. Now, you see, David asked the same question, doesn't he, in, in Psalm 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars, which you've ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? It's a proper question, you see, when we get this transcendence in mind. But what does the psalmist go on to say? There's a bit of an adversity of yet. You have made him a little lower than God or the angels. You crowned him with glory and majesty. God made us in his image, appointed us to rule over his creation. Now, in rebellion, we forfeited much of that. And so... We're worms, and thus our Savior became a worm to deliver us. Listen to him in Psalm 22 when he cries out, But I am a worm and not a man. As he bore the guilt of our imputed sin, 
He knew the distance between a holy God and what he'd become by guilt. Not by nature, but by guilt. And it was as if he was a worm. He was weak and he was helpless. But he became a worm to restore us to the image of God. That we might then live as the servants of God and revel in the transcendence of God. And so, our meditation from Isaiah. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly, and receive, revive the heart of the contrite. Remarkable. That this transcendent God who darkens all heavenly lights, stoops, stoops to have fellowship and communion with all of us who seek him from contrite and broken hearts, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. So once again, Bildad is caricatured, a beautiful attribute of God, by wrongly applying it to redeemed sinners. And so... We've learned here that an unbalanced presentation of God's attributes leads to uh, ugly caricatures of God and hopelessness of men. Now, we revel, I trust you revel in these attributes. There's not five more glorious things said about God in the Bible. But we must always hold things together uh, in balance. We must be careful not to go to extremes as the God loves you or God hates you. Are the extremes that we see today in, in evangelical Christianity where, um, because the Bible says, whosoever will may come, that anybody is free of his own to uh, believe in Jesus if he wanted to or not believe in Jesus and that God's a God of love and he's not really a God of judgment. You know, that's only a portion of truth. But it's only a portion of truth then when others will avoid the whosoever will promises because we know that nobody's willing. But that's not the issue, you understand. It's a glorious promise. Whosoever will may come. And then we'll find out that we were made willing because God granted us new hearts. But don't avoid the great gospel promises. Be free and promiscuous, calling boys and girls and men and women to to flee from their sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is true, men, in your preaching. Um, we must stay balanced in our preaching. Now, today, the imbalance goes on the side of hyper-grace, not enough law. But there are those, because of that, that preach too much law, not enough Christ. That's wrong. Just as it's wrong to, to preach grace without the responsibilities to serve God or, or Christ without the law that drives us to Christ. And, and because we're sinners, we all tend to go to one extreme or the other. And so we seek to hold and balance the beautiful pictures of God given to us in his attributes. And a, and a good way to do that, my friends, and that is uh, take this second chapter of the Confession of Faith and just meditate 
on all that it teaches there about God, remembering that this is God. It's all in a balanced nature. And keep this in mind as well in your personal relationships. I can think back to many times in my life where I said the right thing the wrong way and then accomplished no good. I'm sure that many of you can as well. Let's just take a little scenario as we wrap this up. Let's just say that you hear two friends, professing Christians, really complaining about all the troubles of their life and you know, when it rains, it pours, and they're commiserating with one another. And, and what are you tempted? I know what you're thinking is, what, won't these people realize that God is sovereign? And you're tempted to say that, aren't you? Don't you guys remember that God is sovereign? Well, maybe next time, do something like this. Start with, you know, you really have had a rough week, haven't you? Isn't it great to know that, that God loves you? And then one of them might say, well, if you love me, why is this happening? Then you say, well, look, is there any greater manifestation of God's love than he gave us his son? He so loved the world. He gave us his son as our savior. There you have encouraged them and you've set forth a bit of gospel and didn't do any damage. Maybe it wouldn't help. It won't help unless the spirit blesses it. So now we come to the Lord's table. And here we have this beautiful manifestation of the balance of God's attributes. As the psalmist says, that justice and mercy kiss. And they kissed at Calvary, where the Savior, because of God's love for us, satisfied God's justice against us. Keep that in mind, the balance of God's attributes as we come to the table. Let us pray. We bless your name, holy God, and we thank you for... um, this great presentation, Lord, we, we love you for all of these things and, and we bless your name, but we also pray that you'll keep us uh, from the imbalances of Bildad and our thinking, our own situation or interacting with others and just to revel, Lord, in all these truths about you and by your grace hold them uh, together. May your spirit bless these truths, Lord, to all of us here this day and prepare us now by the positive presentation of sovereign dominion and transcendence to realize that you're inviting us now to come to your table. So direct our hearts thereunto for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.